Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Melinda Jennison, who's the Managing Director of Streamline Property Buyers, a buyers agency specialising in Brisbane and located in Brisbane. We have a chat to her about her background as what I describe a proper clever person. She has a PhD in exercise physiology and we speak about how that academic background serves her as a property investment expert today. She has a lot of experience in the development side of property and we speak to her about the due diligence that she goes through and some of the pitfalls for investors that are looking to get involved in the development space. And we cast the spotlight on Greater Southeast Queensland, what some of the drivers are and what her expectations are for growth in the future. It's a great interview and Melinda's very generous with her time and knowledge. Here's Melinda. Melinda Jennison, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, for people that maybe haven't heard of you, can you start us off with who you are and what you specialise in? Sure. Well, I am a qualified property investment advisor, so I'm accredited through Property Investment Professionals of Australia, so otherwise known as PIPA, but I'm also a licensed buyer's agent and I lead a small team in a boutique buyer's agency here in Brisbane. Awesome. And we're going to dive right into Brisbane and your expertise as well. What about a bit of dirt to kick us off as well? The posters on the bedroom wall growing up? You're going to be extremely disappointed because oh. I actually didn't have any posters on my wall. I, um, I actually grew up, I've got two brothers and my bedroom was my little sanctuary and I chose to decorate it with things like my grandmother's crystal and really special things. So the only thing that I would have had on my bedroom wall, which sounds um, very boring, is like a schedule because I was very studious and I liked to study. (laughs) And I spent a lot of time um, playing sport as well. So I had to balance that work or that, you know, homework with, um, with the sport that I was participating in as well. So that was about it. That's all I stuck on my bedroom wall. Wow, you're so rock and roll. <laughs> Sounds very <laughs> doesn't it? No, it's all going to make sense when I, I jump into my first of the real questions. But just putting that to the side for a second, what about property? How, how did you get started in property to begin with and what was your first investment? Yeah, look, I my dad was a property investor, so I've got really good memories of um, growing up and accompanying him back in the day where rent used to be collected by knocking on doors Um, And I'd go around often on a Friday night with him collecting rent from the tenants that he had in his flats. Wow. Um, So you were the muscle. (laughs) I'd just hide behind him, I think. That was uh, my (laughs) role. But we also spent a lot of time on weekends mowing the flats and pulling weeds out. Dad was very um, fond and, and very proud of the investments that he owned. So that was a starting place for me. And I guess that set a really good foundation for me moving into my own investment um, portfolio. And then I never actually rented. The first property that I purchased um, after leaving home was the first property that I lived at um, after leaving my mum and dad's place. So always had the mindset of an investor and uh, never wanted to to be a renter, always wanted to, to own my own home and start my own investment journey. Something about wandering around on a weekend collecting rent from people, I guess, triggered that you probably want to be on the side of the equation that you were as as a young girl. Possibly. I did. I remember peering over my or around my dad's uh, legs sometimes thinking, how can people live like that? But, um, you know, 
I guess, providing accommodation for people. I was really proud that my dad, you know, was able to do that because, um, you know, not everybody has the luxury to be in that position. So I think just having, you know, having the ability to to provide accommodation for others was something that I always aspired to. Yeah, and I think it's a very important thing that uh, is often missed uh, in the lead up to federal elections. But that's that's side issue and bugbear of mine. I don't want to start this interview without highlighting that you're a proper clever person. You have a PhD in exercise physiology and energy metabolism, whatever on earth that is. It begs the question what you're doing on a low rent podcast such as this. But let's just shift that to the side. Can you can you talk us through this? Well, first, I'll dismiss that comment because um, this is not a low-rent podcast. I get a lot of value <laughs> listening to some of oh. you, I must admit. So, <laughs> That's no, very kind. I, I, my interest um, was always um, in sport and in health and fitness. So uh, my natural progression from school was to complete a degree in human movement studies. Um, and I was lucky enough to do quite well. And I was offered a scholarship to go straight into a PhD program. And at that time, I just felt that that was um, the natural next step for me. Um, I had some professors that were encouraging me to go that way as well. So I, I did leap into a PhD program and I worked with a group of patients who had cystic fibrosis. So we were assessing how energy um, or expenditure during exercise impacted on their overall health. Now, I did find it personally challenging because I was working with adults who were a similar age to me, but they were at any stage of their life. And I found that personally challenging. So um, whilst I loved the research component, I I didn't feel passionate about that area because um, of the challenges that I was facing at a personal level, just by dealing with the people that uh, were so unwell. So that's yeah. That's um, that's yeah. That's pretty pretty heavy subject matter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're there to help them and, you know, to provide a better quality of life. But, you know, with a disease like that, unfortunately, there is no cure. So, you know, I was always looking down the barrel of something that that may have happened to them in the short term, whereas I had my whole life ahead of me. And just that um, impacts you in in ways that you don't realise until you're actually in that position. So now you're full guns blazing into the property and have been for, for some time, but I, it begs the question, what has that that academic training given you when you sort of bring that over to the real estate space? I'm imagining your your due diligence is, is pretty sophisticated. Yeah, look, I think once an academic, always an academic, but um, really I, I do still use the skills that I acquired during the my previous, um, you know, roles in, in academia. So the skill of being able to analyse statistics and to be able to interpret data and to be able to really um, dumb that down effectively just to help people understand what it actually means, those skills are really transferable into the role that I'm now um, doing. And, and certainly the clients that do work with us get a real appreciation for, you know, the way we're able to communicate, sometimes complex um, analysis, um, but we're also doing our own internal um, comparisons, if you like. We're looking at statistics that we're collecting in terms of uh, price growth in different suburbs and correlating different types of properties and how the price growth different differs de- depending on whether it's something that's subdividable or has development potential versus something that's not. So, you know, we're using, I'm using those skills in a, in a different way, but certainly applying them to, you know, help move us forward in in providing the best possible service for our clients. 
There's some different parallels, and I know there's a couple of people in in the the property investment industry that have got um, similar education levels as well. And obviously, that's a huge advantage. I, I wanted to sort of ask the question. I guess it begs the question: How you got from there into property? Obviously, the the first spark was working with your old man back in the day, but your your husband, life partner, and now business partner is a builder. So, was he a builder whilst you were an academic, and that sort of sparked a bit of an interest in the development side of property for you as well? Yeah, it's another good question. Basically, um, so the first property that I did purchase was with Scott, who's my now husband. So, um, and because of his skill set, he was a carpenter at the time. And because of that skill set that he had and the networks that he had, we were able to renovate, you know, that property and add value, manufacture some equity in the property. And then, of course, that's enabled us to continue with that process. Uh, when we moved into construction, um, he ran his own construction company for many years. We knew at that point in time we really didn't want to be that middleman. We didn't want to be the builder because we wanted to move into the position where we could be the developer because the developer is the one that always cuts the margin of the builder. <laughs> so, yeah. so then um, obviously that takes some time to step from, you know, standard investing or buy and renovating through to buy and develop. And, you know, over a number of years, we not only positioned ourselves financially to be able to commence in that development space, but we also built up the skill set that was required to move into that space because it really does require a whole new set of skills that we didn't have when we first started to invest in, in standard, you know, buy and hold properties. So what was your trajectory, your, your, I should say, your trajectory with real estate? How did you sort of begin in the industry? Was that working with, with Scott? Where, where did you sort of get to the point where you were working on the development stuff, as I know you were day to day, and then moving into your own business? Yeah, we, um, I think that our personal experience in property um, really generated that passion for me. And so when I transitioned out of academia, that coincided with starting a family. So um, we've got three boys now. And when they were young, I chose to be a mum that could be there at home with them. Uh, but that also coincided with the commencement of a construction company that we had for many years. So that enabled me to work with Scott in construction, but also, you know, be there for my kids when they were young. When the kids went back to school, that's when we knew we'd move into development. And so we started to do our own residential developments. Um, and I was very much involved in site sourcing as well as managing those projects from concept right through to completion. Um, and, and really, like for a lot of other people, when the lending really tightened and serviceability criteria became a lot more strict. Um, development income is quite lumpy. So, you know, we decided that we would work for others for a short while. And, um, and in that time, I was working with another buyer's agency here in Brisbane, but working with their top end clients to not only source and buy development sites, but also project manage those developments from concept right through to completion. So, that was the the journey that I took, um, and obviously, then Scott and I have a combined skill set whereby we felt we could do it ourselves under our own brand, and that's when we branched out to our own company, Streamline Property Buyers, and um, and we haven't looked back. Awesome. And what sort of development projects are you running with your own business? Are they similar to the stuff that you've done personally, or can you can you give us an idea about the types of developments that you're you're sourcing sites for and project managing and delivering for your clients? Yeah, sure. Well, personally, the projects that we've been involved in have been 
slightly larger projects. We've sort of done uh, boutique unit complexes um, up to seven and 10 in a complex. That's not really what our target is for our clientele right now. So we're really helping mum and dad investors who want a more sophisticated investment strategy. So we're really only talking small boutique infill type development projects, things like um, standard one into two lot subdivisions or because in Brisbane we have a lot of character homes, sometimes it involves retaining the existing property and renovating that and doing some infill development behind um, by way of townhouse development or something like that. So they're the sort of small boutique projects we're helping clients with, whether they're actually staging them just to buy the opportunity um, and land banking them for some future point in time where they may decide to develop themselves or some investors that we're working with will never do the development themselves. But based on the research that we've done internally, we do know that the capital growth on some of these sites is superior in uh, certain locations around Brisbane. So a developer in the future may pay a premium for that property simply because it has got the superior development potential. So, you know, they might have an exit strategy to sell to a developer at, you know, some point in the future that aligns with their timeframes. So it's got that upside potential, but it's not like it's costing them money undeveloped. So that really should be the immediate highest and best use? Correct. Yeah. So at the moment, a lot of the uh, properties that we are helping clients to purchase, um, sometimes they, a lot of buyers wouldn't even know that they have development potential. So the development potential is hidden. It comes from understanding town planning principles um, and it comes from not only looking at land zoning and, you know, what the future use of uh, an area is likely to be, but it's also is the site developable because it's not land zoning alone that has um, the, the greatest impact on whether a site can be developed or not. It also comes down to site contours, it comes down to access to underground services, um, all of those sorts of things. So we're really positioning for, you know, the highest capital return if, if someone was going to buy it in the future, it's going to be an A-grade development site, not something that would be looked over because it doesn't have access to all of the things that a developer would be looking for. And just on those things, you highlighted a couple of things that you look at, which which give a bit of an insight into the complexity of being a developer and the things that people need to look out for. I've always found that investors seem to think that being a developer is a natural part of the progression of of building a portfolio, i.e. you get to a certain amount of properties and then you become a developer because it's silly not to do that because of the returns and that sort of thing. Do, do you think that it should be a natural progression or and that it is a better path to travel down once you've got a certain number of properties under your belt? Absolutely not. I think it comes down to assessing the individual investor I think that there's a lot of investors that um, wouldn't have the risk appetite to move into development. It's much higher risk. Things can go wrong and people can lose a lot of money, especially if they're not educated and they don't know the process. Um, I think it also depends on what someone's trying to achieve because when you're moving into property development, you know, for someone that's looking for a really long-term build wealth strategy, that may not be something that's suitable for them because it does create... Um, immediate income in the short term and you know you you either need to refinance and lock that in as equity or you draw that income out so it can um, it creates a lot a lot more complexities and it's not just a, a natural prog progression for most investors I think it ne needs to be seriously thought out as to whether it's the right strategy for for someone based on their circumstances 
Do you think it's a bit of a, a vanity or an ego thing that people like to stand in front of you know a site and say, "Look at my five townhouses," or is it is it maybe a sort of a Harry Triggerboff sort of thing where we look at the rich list and we go, "Property developer, righto, I'll have what he's he's have, having." Yeah, look, I think that there is a little bit of that when it comes to property development. People do like to show off what they own, but um, you know, as I mentioned, it's definitely not for everyone. And and there's a lot of people that you know maybe very successful property developers, but don't have that ego and and don't need to show off what they've created as well. So I think that comes down to the personality um, in terms of how they they want that to look. But for some people, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that. Yeah, you've captured that perfectly. And certain people make it look easy, but uh, obviously there are a lot of ways that it can go wrong. But but speaking of sort of getting to a certain number of, of properties, we had a chat a little while ago um, and we came up with three little, um, I think we were sort of talking about video ideas, right? We're always looking for different ways to get content. And, and one of the sort of pervasive property investment ideas is that the number of property properties matters. You know, you, you hear about books like naught to 10 properties in 10 years, or I'm a buyer's agent and I've got 50 properties, so you should work with me. How, how skeptical do you think we should be, be of, of the number of properties as a default measure of success? Yeah, again, it comes down to the personal investor because I personally believe quality over quantity and I take that approach every day of the week. I think that um, different types of investors need to build their portfolio in different ways. Um, Certainly those that may have um, a day job that pays a low income, then the type of property that they are able to afford might be a lower price point. And so over time, they might build more, they might have more properties in their portfolio as they accumulate. Now, for someone that may be on a higher income who has greater serviceability, able to borrow a greater sum upfront from the bank, then three or four really well-placed investment properties in high capital growth areas Um, in my opinion, would be a better long-term approach to build wealth because you're going to get superior capital growth in locations that um, potentially, you know, are closer to CBDs on transport corridors, et cetera. So always we have to weigh up the balance between capital growth and rental yield. Um, And in terms of the number, in my opinion, it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. We also look at the end end game you know what does an investor need by the time they approach retirement and we can quantify that in terms of what would be the passive income someone would be looking to pull out from a property portfolio and you've got to work backwards from that point to build that portfolio so you know for some properties if you've purchased 30 30 properties as an example um, you've got to weigh up well what is the capital growth rate on those properties and how soon are you going to be at the passive income that you require for retirement versus two or three well-placed properties um, with good capital growth where where you know that 6 or 7% per annum compounding capital growth over 30 years will achieve your desired outcome. I think people sometimes take a, you know, an approach where they want to get there faster. So they think by buying more, they'll get there faster, but that's not always, you know, the case. It does depend on the individual. Yeah, you can see why it's a sort of an intoxicating idea. Sticking with your example of, say, someone that's on a lower income and they're needing to either purchase 
properties at a lower price point or, or perhaps do nothing at all. Is there a point where perhaps they should be saving up for four or five years to buy a quality, low, well-located property? Or, or is are they better to stick with that methodology and get a property every year in, in areas that maybe are still positive um, positively geared, maybe reasonable capital growth, but not as good as the as the more expensive properties. Is that is that a, a difficult question to answer? It is. It's a really hard question to answer because it comes down to the performance of what they've acquired to date. You know, I think that like any business, uh, a property portfolio should be run like a business, and every twelve to eighteen months, the investor needs to analyse what's the performance been. So. There's definitely an opportunity cost of just saving cash, particularly in today's environment where interest rates are so low. Um, if you are able to get any form of growth or return that exceeds the rate of inflation or, you know, how much you're going to get when you put your money in the bank, then there may be the opportunity to, to purchase something in the short term to, to actually get into the market in case the market does move. But it comes down to analysing how have those properties performed in the period that you've held them is there an opportunity cost by investing in those properties versus investing in other asset classes or other properties in different locations? So, you know, looking at it really is individual based on the investor and um, and working out, you know, how long would it take if they were to save a deposit? Is there going to be an opportunity cost associated with that? Um, and would there be a market that would provide a better return than sitting that cash in the bank in the short term? I'm trying to sort of do my best to argue with you, which is difficult because I I'm pretty much agree exclusively. But let, let's say you've got uh, three properties in blue chip areas compared to twenty odd in in regional areas it, it, that are, that are not you know terrible sort of um, mining town things that have a lot of risk. Is there a diversification value that really you know having that portfolio spread it? it it covers you a bit more than than those blue chip. I'm trying. I'm trying to find a, a reason why uh, it would be better to, to to look at the number rather than the quality. And some people would argue that that is the case. Um, I believe you can diversify within a property portfolio in three different ways, and you've highlighted one of those ways, and that is through location. But I believe you can also diversify through strategy. Um, you know, whether you're just a standard buy and hold investor or buy, renovate, buy, develop, uh, or you can also diversify through asset class within property. So you can purchase residential property or commercial property or industrial property. And, and therefore, you know, diversification through location is definitely one way to minimise risk in your property portfolio, whether you need to diversify to 20 or 30 different locations. You know, that's the question that needs to be answered um, because I think, you know, different investors, again, are looking for, for different ways to ensure the, that the portfolio continues to perform into the future. For us personally, the way we diversify is through asset class, through residential and industrial property, but also through the strategy that we use. You know, we use renovation and we use development as different methods to force value and manufacture value into our portfolio and you know for us doing that because we are in Brisbane it makes it easy to do because we are located here um, it would be much more difficult for us to do that in another location so therefore that's the strategy that works with us. Just 
as you touched on Brisbane, it, it'd be a bit remiss of me not to ask you about Brisbane. Can can you give us a bit of an overview of, of the market, what it's been like in the last little while and, and when those sort of predictions from major media outlets, which are now maybe six years old of Brisbane booming, are going to come true? Yes. So, um, look, what we are seeing on the ground is not necessarily correlating with what the most recent median values will say. In fact, the core logic data that just came out yesterday, which was at the end of um, as at the end of October 2019, showed that the Brisbane median value has increased, although only very slightly by 1.1%. Um, however, what we are finding in certain pockets that we're purchasing property in for clients is that the demand outstrips supply about 20 to 1. Um, as an example, we were at an auction on behalf of a client just on Saturday where there were 22 registered bidders for the property. Now, the, the most recent comparables, um, which were between 8 and 12 months ago, um, we saw this property sold under the hammer for 20% over what the most recent comparative sales um, put the value of the property at. So, that just gives you an indication of what's happening on the ground in some pockets and it's built on this um, notion where we've got a lot of buyers that have entered the Brisbane market but supply is actually really um, minimal. So in terms of new listings, listing volumes have gone backward in the spring season which is very unusual. Normally at this time of year we see more properties come to the market um, and that aligns with more buyers in the market but that's not been the case this spring unfortunately. Mm, and hence the competition. And and that sort of result, we, we'd have to be talking an, an owner-occupied type property, or, or at least that's the competition. Or investors, are they really getting stuck in looking for the quality assets? Yeah, well, I guess for our investor, I mean, we certainly knew that they would have to have a stretch factor based on current demand. We didn't think it'd be 20%. So unfortunately, they missed out. Um, an owner-occupier, um, as we understand it, did secure that property and people are getting hungrier and FOMO is sort of setting in and therefore people do pay more just to secure the property. I think in an environment where you just don't have a lot of listings coming to the market, uh, when they do come, people scramble and people are throwing high numbers just to lock themselves into the market. You mentioned the the median price moving and, and I've always found the median price to be sort of a little bit of a trickier thing in South East Queensland. I guess it's broken up into the areas, but but it is a very sort of geographically diverse sort of area um, when you're talking, you know, from, I guess, Gold Coast up to Sunshine Coast, which a lot of people, I guess, would assume is the, the southeast Queensland areas. Now, they've been popular, I guess, all up and down the coast there from an investment point of view with varying degrees of success. Can you run us through some of the key pockets and what the drivers are and what's going on on the ground? Absolutely. Well, yeah, it is a very large geographical location when we look at southeast Queensland. So Gold Coast in itself and the Sunshine Coast are two property markets which are coastal. Um, we don't spend a lot of time analysing those markets because they're outside of the location that we would be um, recommending for our clients based on our local knowledge. So when we consider Brisbane and, and a lot of median data that looks at Brisbane incorporates the Brisbane local government area as well as the surrounding shires of the Moreton Bay Council region, the Ipswich City Shire, the Logan Shire and Redlands. So that creates five very large geographically spread uh, city council regions. 
Um, within each of those regions, there's a very, I guess, um, there's a balance of supply and demand that is mismatched in some areas more than others. And let me give you an example. So when we look at um, Logan and Ipswich as two of those local government areas, broad hectare land studies um, that the Queensland government have completed show that about 75% of southeast Queensland's future land supply is going to be coming out of those two government uh, regions as well as the Gold Coast. So that's a lot of the future supply for residential dwellings is going to be coming from those locations. Now, as an investor, you've always got to consider what the balance between supply and demand is. So yes, they are very um, fast growing areas in terms of population growth, but with that amount of future projected supply, um, the population growth has to really, really push push up higher than that, that projected future supply to see real price growth. Um, when we look through to the north, Morton is between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast, a much narrower uh, block of land because the bay does come in to the east and we are bound by a lot of government-owned damming um, land to the west. So it's a narrower stretch of land, which means that the future land supply is much less, much more limited. Um, so therefore, it is one of the fastest growing council regions across Australia, uh, but with limited future supply, it does present uh, with more future uh, development, oh, sorry, more future capital growth opportunity. And then, of course, Brisbane as a local government area, um, we are the baby sister to Sydney and Melbourne, third largest capital in Australia, but um, a lot is happening in Brisbane right now. The government is spending a lot on infrastructure. We've got a second runway that is opening next year. A lot more dwellings are required in Brisbane and the uh, projections are that 94% of all future dwellings within the Brisbane local government area will come from infill development because there's just not a lot of broad hectare land available. So that in itself presents as a huge opportunity for a property investor that's wanting to capitalise on those sorts of opportunities because most of the job growth is going to come from the Brisbane CBD and therefore people want to live where they can um, get to where they work very easily along public transport corridors. And, um, and the way we live in Brisbane needs to change in the future as well because the, um, the way we commute needs to change. We still jump in the car and drive around our city, but commute times have doubled in the last 10 years. So that also has to change and, and people must rely on public transport in the next you know, 10 to 15 years or our roads will become gridlocked and that will impact on on the way we live. So all of that needs to be considered when we're looking at an investment strategy for a client and recommending locations based on our local knowledge, but also overlaying that with the data that we do rely on. I love it. And there's some key fundamental considerations for, for property investors when we're talking about those those the supply and demand characteristics as well. So um, definitely encourage a rewind, another listen to that for anyone who wants to understand uh, how the markets work on those sides of the ledger. I want to talk about a uh, little bit of a change of change of uh, tact. We talked about a concept and that was 
generating equity through your principal place of residence or or that that is to say rather than just thinking of it as your house it's a sneaky little vehicle to be able to grow your net worth in a low taxing environment can you talk us through that fantastic video that you had uh, a little while ago yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it's a strategy that um, myself and Scott have used personally to build our own uh, portfolio. But when you are purchasing a PPR, a principal place of residence, that is your home, in an area that provides all of the fundamental investment grade things that you would otherwise be looking for, then you have the ability to generate equity or profit that is tax-free, providing you hold that property for more than 12 months. So, you know, some people call it home hopping if you buy, renovate and sell. Um, but, you know, certainly for us, as your equity growth or the, the value of your property increases, you have the ability to tap into the equity to pull that equity out and um, fund, use that equity as a deposit to fund future investment purchases. So, it's a bit of a strategic way to do it, but um, and it's not always possible because it does require that um, the home meets investment grade criteria as well. So it's just, it's a sneaky way that a lot of investors are able to generate good wealth and, um, and use that for the benefit of building out a portfolio. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's something that uh, I guess people haven't talked about much in the past. But the you know the capital gains tax when you when you're selling a property is pretty significant, and having that exemption makes a big deal. There was another point that we discussed um, over a couple of lattes a little while ago, and I've completely forgotten what it was. Such as the inspired thing that coffee does to you, and then you go back to write things down, and you've lost it all. Um, if you remember that, please interrupt me. But otherwise, I, I wanted to ask you why you specialise in just the, the Brisbane market. I know maybe a few different councils, but you're not sourcing investment properties across Australia, which it seems to be a number of property buyers agents are focusing on. Yeah, well, it's a good question. And, you know, I do sometimes speak to people that um, ask if we buy outside of Brisbane. And the answer is no. I mean, our team really are flat out keeping up with what's happening just in our city and the areas that we're active in, um, let alone sort of trying to, to keep up with what's happening across the entire country. So, look, we we have to assess the, the property data. That's, that's the starting point for us to determine which markets we're going to focus on. And that's looking at it from, you know, not only the, the median values and vacancy rates and days on market and all of the, the typical numbers that property investors could be looking at, but it's also through understanding the Southeast Queensland Economic Development Plan, infrastructure plans, um, local government plans, neighbourhood plans, all of these plans are put in place to help build a city. And that's the intricate knowledge that we can provide to assist our property um, or our clients, the investors that we, we assist. Because we're not looking at Brisbane as it is today. We're actually looking at Brisbane in terms of what it's going to look like 15 or 20 years from now. And so we have to overlay all of that data with what's happening on the ground as well. Because the other thing that we find is that a lot of the data is misrepresentative or um, a little bit delayed. So what we're seeing on the ground, like the example that I shared earlier, is that buyer demand in some pockets is just outstripping supply and we are seeing the prices escalate before our eyes but that's not reflecting in the data yet 
because settlement periods are at least 30 to 60 days. So by the time that data is recorded, you know, we're looking in the rear view mirror if we're looking at data all of the time. So it's, it's overlaying the data with real-time observations and seeing how many people are inspecting properties on the ground. That gives us an indication of current demand in a pocket even, you know, before a property sells. But we also have really good agent relationships uh, because we are local. We get to deal face-to-face with a lot of the sales agents that we work with. And, of course, the, the due diligence that we're otherwise able to do for a client, it takes it to another whole level because we're not just looking at, you know, what the rental yields will be, um, what the vacancy rates of an area are. I mean, we, we are looking at what's coming to the area, what's the future development that's planned, will this property be impacted or is there an advantage to be positioning in this property so that I can capitalise on some future development opportunities? Um, Scott, being a licensed builder, he's also looking at, you know, what are the maintenance costs on this property? How much is it going to cost me to hold this property? Because obviously maintenance costs impact on an investor's yield as well. So overlay all of that. There's no way we can do that outside of our own city. Um, and it's really just about no. specialising as opposed to generalising. And that's that's the way we we like to sort of provide our service. Awesome. I want to ask you a question that I think people have been talking about for a little while. I'm a little bit slow to the party, but there's been this term thrown around about an, an A-grade investment and you'll see bits of advertising saying, you know, only 1% of properties fit our investment criteria and that sort of thing. What, what does an A-grade investment property look like to you? Well, to me personally, and, um, you know, this is obviously independent of something that someone else may may consider but for me I'm always considering the fact that 70% of the buyers of residential property are owner occupiers so I have to always overlay that with my decisions when I'm, I'm looking for a good investment grade property so I'm looking in a suburb that's desirable the location the demographics are that the um, majority of the the group or the majority of the buyers are owner occupiers I'm looking for at least 70% of that suburb being made up of owner occupiers because they're the ones that actually will force value into their home by renovating and improving the home. Investors don't do that. I'm looking for um, a suburb that people have good high disposable income so they do have the money to spend on their homes to improve them. I'm looking for a location that's close to really good schools. Public transport is definitely on my priority list in terms of ensuring that the location has good access to employment hubs. and that you don't need to rely on the car in the future. I'm also looking for a really high land to asset ratio. So I want to make sure that the money I'm paying for a property, most of the value is going into the land. And if possible for me personally, I'm looking for something with upside development potential, whether I do the development myself or choose to sell to a developer in the future, I know that I'm gonna get a better return if I can put two dwellings on the site instead of just one. Um, In terms of immediate, improvement, something that grandma might have owned that has flowery carpet with lacy curtains. I can replace that very quickly. I'll get some depreciation benefits by doing that. That'll improve. Now we're talking. Yeah, you'd like to hear that. <laughs> Just um, when we thought everyone was falling asleep, you've woken them up with the exciting aspect of tax legislation. Oh, but then, you know, you get a better <laughs> rent, you attract a better quality tenant. Um, you do get True. to get that value yourself. Um and, and ensuring that the area that we select has vacancy rates trending downward and, and that are low at that time of purchase to make sure we can get a tenant in place as quickly as possible. So I guess overlay that 
along with the, the other due diligence that we would be doing. But as a broad snapshot, I know that was quite descriptive, but that, that would be what I would be aiming for personally. No, it, it was perfect. And as much as I would have loved to be able to say, you know, Melinda Jennison says on a nice little graphic, that's definitely not going to fit. But I'd rather, I'd rather go into more detail. And, and we should have known um, with an academic that we needed to, to I guess, go more to the vegetables than the lollies. But th- those are some really great points that I think all investors should, should consider when they're looking at an investment property. Speaking of in, in investors, I, I wanted to get a little bit more theoretical, I guess. Now, now, based on the the stats, and I refer to to I guess the the point that the vast majority of investors, I think that last count is about seventy two percent, only purchase one investment property. That indicates that they're not seeing the success that they would like, because one investment property, assuming that would not necessarily give you a huge change in your expectation of retirement or lifestyle, that sort of thing. What what are some of the fundamentals you think we're getting wrong? Is it we're maybe be getting distracted by hot spots or Uncle Terry at the Christmas barbecue? What's going wrong? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of noise in the property investment space um, more recently. So investors, you know, a lot of the clients that I speak to, even prospects that are not yet clients, they're really, really confused. They really don't know what type of property they should be chasing. Um, And it comes down to understanding what they want to achieve by investing in property. And I think that's the big thing that a lot of people miss because, you know, I've spoken to, um, we've, we've worked with cardiologists who have extremely high incomes. Um, as an example, he thought he needed a positively geared property and he was purchasing in his own name. Gee. That was just an example of people just don't understand property and and how it can deliver the the desired outcome that they want so there's different types of um property you know investment strategies people sometimes chase a yield now if they want income now others chase long-term capital growth if they're really wanting to build a portfolio for the future so it's about understanding what type of property is going to be right for you as an individual investor and really having some plan in place as to what that looks like for you from the point you're wanting that property to provide an income and, and work backward from there so that every property that you purchase is is putting you in a position that you're going to get closer to your desired goals. So I think that um, there's definitely a lot of noise in the market and investors sometimes need to just strip it back to understand why are they investing, what is it they're wanting to get out of the property and then devising the the strategy around what they need, not just around what others might be doing or what others might be offering. Let, let's say we've got a, a goal that we would like to fund our retirement with a reasonable degree of comfort and for sake of argument, let's say we want $2 million worth of cash at retirement age. Is there a, a, a with the market sort of such as it is at the moment, is there a, a safe way to sort of work backwards from that and create a bit of a, a templated plan or is it really sort of just specific on the on the the income of the person or, or is there a, a clear sort of path that we can all sort of look towards? Yeah, I think if we were to consider what's the safest approach to building a portfolio, I mean, right now we are in an environment where interest rates are at record lows. The cost of borrowing money is is very, very low. 
And certainly there's markets around Australia where rental yields, you know, are certainly in Brisbane, rental yields are anywhere from four to five, sometimes up to 5.5% in good investment grade locations at the time of purchase. So what that means is you can still get good, solid compounding capital growth over the longer term, but have the, the rental yields that you're generating from the property almost service the loan you know, that you certainly the interest component of the loan as well as any holding costs associated with the property. So, you know, that's a really safe um, way to build out a portfolio. But the important thing that I think a lot of investors don't do is just that 12 to 18 month reassessment. So it really is important to understand how a portfolio is tracking. And, you know, when you are in a position where you're able to pull equity out of your pro property portfolio, obviously that equity can be used as a deposit for the next purchase. So, you know, sometimes people need guidance around that in terms of the strategy. Um, other investors, you know, are quite capable to do that themselves. And it just comes down to making sure that um, you're reminding yourself to do that because once you've got a property and it's self-servicing, it can almost be set and forget and you, you know, life gets in the way. But um, it's always just come, coming back to having that plan in place and making sure that you're reviewing it regularly. You've had a lot of success in growing your portfolio and obviously the growth of your business is evidence that you're you're helping a lot of people. Is that the key ingredient? Is is that strategy and sticking to it and, and avoiding the, I guess, the, the, the market and magazines and, and, and property investment news in, in the general media? Or, or is there something more specific that you point to as a success point? Is it the research? Is it the, the negotiation? Or is it only available to people like you that have the connections with real estate agents and get these juicy off-market deals? <laughs> Oh, look, I think that we started our business really to help people and to ensure people didn't make mistakes. So, you know, there was a turning point for me where I was managing a small development and um, I had a chat to the neighbour over a dividing fence issue and, you know, we'd just knocked down a house and we were about to build three townhouses. But she said to me, I would never have purchased this property if I'd have known I was going to be living next door to three townhouses. And it really was a light bulb moment for me. And I thought, you know, a lot of people don't think to check this sort of information. And yet this is probably one of the first things that I would check as an investor, because I don't want to be impacted by future developments. So, you know, I guess for us, it's just about helping people to ensure they're positioning themselves for the best possible outcome based on what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, we don't want people to make mistakes. And we also don't want to take over the process from people. So we we like to work with clients and empower them to make an informed decision by the time it comes to purchasing a property. And we do that by not just um, taking over the process, but educating them, you know, about our process and, and how we select an investment grade location, and then how we select an investment grade property within that location. So that's definitely feedback that we've received from clients who have worked with us. Um, and we've even helped clients who have worked or who have previously engaged other much larger buyers agency firms. And they do like the um, approach that we take because we are a personalised service. Um, people that work with us get to deal with us. So we don't hand down our clients to, to other people in the business. So I think that customer service and um, delivering on, on people's brief is is what we specialize in and and we do that in a way where we're just not handing down we we're all involved throughout the whole process 
Yeah, and I think leveraging the expertise uh, of someone like yourself or a buyer's agents in general is important and perhaps one of the reasons why investors aren't getting the results that they look for. I mean, it's easy to sort of look at the the cost of, of a buyer's agent, but, you know, this is a pretty, it's a pretty sizable investment that has the capacity to sort of really put a stop to all of our um, future equity growing activities if it's something that costs a bit of money to hold on to or it's the wrong asset to begin with. Um, so definitely I'd recommend having a chat to people such as yourself. If people are wanting to have a chat to you, Melinda, what's the best way to do that? Look, our website is just streamlineproperty.com.au. We've got all of our contact details are there, but I'm also on LinkedIn under my own name, Melinda Jennison. So you will find me there, but uh, feel free to reach out. You can book a consultation directly from our website, which gets direct direct access to my calendar for 45 minutes of uninterrupted time. So that's a good way to make sure that um, I set aside time to speak directly with you. Gosh, I love that. I'm so lazy with booking appointments. That's a deciding factor for me a lot of the time. Um, if there's one piece of advice that you can provide to, to property investors, and we're, I'm presuming we've touched on it already, but if you can give me some sort of snappy little quote card, um, what would it be? I think that understand why you're actually investing in property. It's a question I ask people upfront all the time, and it surprises me how many people can't answer that. So is it to build wealth for the future or is it to replace your income now or is it to replace your income at some point in the future? So you've got to understand the answers to those questions and then you've also got to understand the timeframes around those answers. Um, And then you've got to overlay that with your current circumstances in terms of your income levels, your family and your lifestyle uh, and then set a plan in place to to set out to, to achieve your goals and make sure then that the next property that you purchase aligns with that long-term plan so that you know that there's a purpose for that property in your portfolio. I think that's great advice and I think we're all generally a little bit guilty at just thinking of the property first. It looks exciting on its on its own, but how it fits into the plan is great advice. Melinda, thank you for sharing your wisdom today. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure here too. Cheers.